You're listening to The Real Investment Show. And good morning. Welcome back to the show. As we've been uh, talking about here at the open, markets are going to open fairly sharply this morning uh, to the downside. And nothing's really going to save you today. Uh, cryptocurrencies are down between 6 and 10%, depending on which ones you own. So it doesn't really matter if you own stocks, if you own cryptocurrency, whatever you own, it's not going to help you much. About the only thing that's going to help you this morning is probably going to be cash and bonds. Um, and that's typically the case. And one of the things that we've talked about recently to a good deal is, is you, know, you know, working through your portfolio to create some hedges, raise some cash, those type of things. And, you know, this is kind of one of the interesting things. There's a, you know, a chart that we showed, I guess, day before yesterday, uh, sorry, on Friday on uh, our Twitter account. That was showing, you know, investors, investors have gotten extremely complacent. In fact, investors, both professional individuals are the least hedged that we've seen since really January of 2018, which was during the midst of that big, you know, bullish run right after the tax cuts were passed, um, you know, back in 2012 and 2013 over the debt ceiling issue. We saw a lot of exuberance there because, again, the Fed was doing a lot of QE and those type of things. So, you know, investors are very confident in the markets. They've had they've got very little hedge, which means there's not much to protect them to the downside at this juncture. And again, there hasn't really seemed to be the case this year. Um, you know, when you talk about you know the markets, because uh, again, you know, investors have been doing everything they can to get money into the markets between. All the liquidity of of the Fed bailouts and and government stimulus. There's just been and, and it's not just in the U.S. Right, this was everywhere. This was in Europe and and in every other country. Massive amounts of liquidity being thrown at the markets um, because of this whole pandemic. Well, all that money had to go somewhere, so it all went into the markets. Why? Because what else are you going to put it into? We've got you know, real negative yields on stocks. You've got real negative yields on bonds. Money market accounts pay zero. So there was no real choice for investors except to put it into equities. And we've seen a record level of global flows into markets this year, unlike we've ever seen. It's unprecedented. Never, I've never seen this type of liquidity flow in the market. So that's, you know, why markets have been so exceptionally strong, really, ever since the March 2020 lows. Now, eventually, that's going to end. Now, what causes that flow to end, of course, is just simply a reversion back to norms. All this liquidity will dry up eventually, and a lot of this extra money that was available is going to go away. And the support for the markets will start to wane here a bit simply because there's just, you know, everybody's all in, you know. And, and there's, you know, the, the one thing about markets is that when everybody's in, then there's nobody left to buy. See, and that's you know ultimately the problem. And we've and we've talked about that a lot lately. That's that liquidity problem that we've discussed here on the show, is that the number of people willing to buy and want to buy are certainly there, and but the number of people willing to sell really kind of aren't. People that own stuff right now, they don't want to sell it because they're afraid of missing out with the market going up. People that want to buy more, they're having to entice sellers to come up. There has to be a seller for a transaction to occur. So somebody's got to sell. It's just a question of at what price will they sell. So I've got to keep bidding up these prices to the point that I actually can entice a seller 
to sell me their shares of Apple or Microsoft or whatever. And that's why we see these kind of just continued ramps in markets, particularly this year in, in general, markets are up 20% this year. It's just been this slow grind higher because we just have to keep blurring these sellers in. But the problem comes when everybody that's wanting to buy, and this is what's going to happen today. And this is why the sell-offs, when they occur, they tend to occur really rapidly is because when somebody wants to sell, there's no buyers. And if the sellers begin to really ramp up, there's really no buyers. There's not enough buyers out there to support the number of people willing to sell when the markets are want to sell, which means prices have to come down. They have to come down rapidly. So this is why you're going to see stocks open sharply lower this morning. Again, the Dow is going to be down about almost 600 points at the open. And we'll see how this kind of finishes out today. But this is that lack of liquidity that we've discussed in the markets previously. You know, one of the and there's two other big kind of things on the rise. So first of all, we have this Ever Evergrande deal, which is a three hundred billion dollar real estate behemoth that is defaulting on their debt um, in just a huge number of areas. And, and again, this is all contained in China at the moment. I suspect, sure, at some point China's going to bail them out. I can't imagine them not. But anything's possible. Anything's possible. Maybe China, Maybe this is the moment where China says, you know what, you got to stand on your own two feet. I mean, China's been doing a lot of things lately that I would have never expected them to do, like limiting video game time for Chinese youth. They want their youth to be more productive, more intelligent. So they've limited the amount of time that they can spend playing video games, limiting the amount of time they can spend on social media, things that... Basically, they, you know, is a, is, a, is, is a waste of time and a waste of productivity. China's making that, that move. You know, this is, and, and so China, ever, this Evergrande bank situation in China, this could be China's next move saying, hey, look, you know what? You're going to have to fail. This is part of capitalism. And, you know, the, if you want to be part of it, hey, there you go. Um, I'm not saying they are. I'm just saying that China's been making some very unprecedented moves that you wouldn't expect them to make in order to improve their economy. We'll see what they do with Evergrande. But there is potential risk of this Evergrande fallout on the rest of the financial markets. Again, you know, the one thing that was with Lehman in particular is that when Lehman blew up, it wasn't just the fact that Lehman went bankrupt. Everybody thought that, oh, well, we can just bankrupt Lehman. You know, it'll be fine. All of a sudden, nobody wanted to trade with anybody, and there was this complete freeze-up of credit markets because nobody wanted to trade with any of their other counterparties. We don't know what the extent with Evergrande are to other banks and other lending institutions around the world. Maybe it's very confined to China. I don't know. I haven't done the research. I'm going to have to do the research now, but <laughs> you know, I don't know at this moment just how integrated Evergrande is into the rest of the financial system, but it, it does pose a risk. Maybe it's a small risk. Maybe it's a big risk. I just don't know. But it, it's something this morning that markets are kind of waking up to as potentially being a problem. But liquidity is what this all comes down to, right? It's either liquidity through banks or it's liquidity through individuals. It's liquidity through governments. You know, what's been driving markets ever since the pandemic shutdown is liquidity. Also coming up this week, we've got the Fed meeting. Now, this sell-off this morning may be enough to get the Fed to reconsider their taper. 
Maybe uh, Powell comes out with a much more dovish statement. You know, the I, the thought was, and the thought has been, and this has been part of the sell-off for the last week or so, is that Jerome Powell would come out with a statement at the Fed meeting saying, hey, you know what? We're going to have to start tapering our balance sheet. We're going to start in November. We're going to end in, you know, June of next year, whatever it is. And we're going to reduce our balance sheet, reduce our bond purchases, take that liquidity out of the markets. I'm not going to raise rates yet, but we're going to start this taper process. Maybe between Evergrande, you know, one of the things that Jerome Powell has focused on consistently has been global economic growth. What's happening overseas versus what's happening here. Focusing on employment, focusing on climate change, all these issues, right? There's all these issues that he's brought up saying, well, you know, we're doing this because, well, you know, global weakness, et cetera. Well, now you've got global weakness. So one of the easy caveats for anybody is like, well, we're still considering tapering in November, but we are closely monitoring the situation in China. We're closely monitoring the situation with the financial markets, whatever it is. And put a more dovish spin on the taper that maybe they just won't taper right now. And maybe they'll taper in a smaller amount. Maybe they'll delay it till 2022. That wouldn't surprise me at all at this point. There's been substantial weakness here. Consumer confidence is down. That'd be another thing for him to be taking a look at. One of the big reasons that you do quantitative easing is to boost consumer confidence. Consumer confidence has been very weak as of late. So again, Plenty of stuff for Jerome Powell to choose from in order to potentially delay the idea of taper happening. That would be bullish for markets in near term. That could help support the markets find the bottom here in the short term. So we'll see. That's so, you know, between Evergrande, you've got the Fed this week. My point is, is that there's lots of risk. There's also potential. And again, we're just going to kind of wait, wait our way through this. Unfortunately, um, if you haven't taken action, as I said at the, in, in the opening today, if you haven't taken action yet, it's too late to do it now. So just wait. Let's see how this market shakes out today. Tomorrow, we'll kind of reevaluate our, our, our troops, so to speak, and figure out where we need to redeploy them. But trying to do so in the mid, if you haven't, if you've been sitting there kind of disregarding the risk and say, oh, this is just a normal correction, we're going to buy the dip, whatever it is, you know, it's too late to do anything now. This is why, you, you, as we said, you have to carry an umbrella before it rains. <laughs> it's a little too late after it starts raining. Um, so you just have to wait this one out today. Unfortunately, it's going to be a bit painful at the open, but by the end of the day, we'll be able to start making some decisions about what to do next and when to do them. So that's it. Now, the other thing that we've got coming up that's also potentially a, a risk for markets is that markets have been really kind of, you know, thinking about this idea of more stimulus, more liquidity for markets. Where's that going to come from? The buying power that individuals need. Well, that's all coming from this $3.5 trillion budget spending bills, something we addressed in this weekend's newsletter. When we come back from the break, we'll talk about what we said in our newsletter and potentially why the Democrats may have now just trapped themselves into a real problem. We'll talk about that when we come back from the break. Don't go away. So as I noted in this weekend's newsletters, I discussed what's going on with this $3.5 trillion budget bill. And part of this is 
also another reason why the Fed may have to postpone tapering. And we'll see what happens. But the Federal Reserve has got to fund about 30% of, of the deficit. So in other words, when the Treasury issues debt, the Fed's going to have to monetize between 20 and 30% of that because there's just simply not enough buyers. And if they don't, interest rates are going to start to rise pretty quickly. That has a lot of implications for the overall markets, economy, housing, etc. So rates really can't go up much, and the Fed knows this. So part of this issue is that the Fed's going to have to monetize a good chunk of this debt when it gets issued. One of the things that we discussed is it's kind of a reconciliation or bust moment for them. And in order to pass this $3.5 trillion deal, this budget deal on their own, we've talked about this a little bit more on the show, they have to use the reconciliation process, which is where the Senate and the House reconcile their budget. So the House passes a budget. The Senate has their budget, and then reconciliation process is where they reconcile the two budgets, come up with one budget they then send to the president for, for, for signature. Now, we don't do budgets anymore. It's so it's now the reconciliation process of continuing resolutions <laughs> is what this comes down to. Now, the key part about this, though, is that everything in the resolution has to be a budgetary item. This is key. If it's something that doesn't do with the budget itself, if it's not part of the of the federal government's budget, it can't be in the reconciliation process. It gets kicked out, it has to have its own vote. That vote would require a 60-vote margin. A reconciliation vote only requires 51 votes so the Democrats can pass it themselves. So this is why it's so important and why we're labeling this $3.5 trillion package as human infrastructure so we can classify it as a budgetary item. It's infrastructure, so that's part of the budget, even though we're expanding Medicare and doing EV spending, a lot of things that really aren't part of the budget at all. But we're going to classify this as, the, as, as human infrastructure so the budget parliamentarian um, will pass this through. Oh, sorry, I said budget. Senate parliamentarian will pass this through as part of the budget, allow them to vote on this as part of the reconciliation. So that's that's the whole point. Okay. The problem now is, of course, is that the Democrats have been fighting amongst themselves. They can't figure out what they want to do. And they've got to pass this continuing resolution. They've got to pass this continuing resolution because at the end of this month, the Treasury is going to run out of capital and have to resort to other what they call extraordinary measures, or theoretically, the government would default on its debt. It would not be able to pay its debt payments. Now, that would never happen, but that's, that's the threat if we don't raise the debt ceiling. We can't issue any more debt. If we can't issue more debt, we can't make our debt payments. We default. Big problems. That's the worry. So now the problem for the Democrats, and this is what they're facing, is they've got to pass this continuing resolution. And they've got to do it fairly quickly. If they don't get this $3.5 trillion package figured out and shoved into the continuing resolution, they're going to have to vote on that package as a standalone item, which means it needs 60 votes. It'll never pass. 
So they've got to get it into this budget. So now what's going to happen is that very likely the Democrats are either going to have to pass the record, the continuing resolution as a standalone item, or they're going to have to probably trim down this three and a half trillion dollar package fairly substantially. Because remember, there's also the $1.2 trillion spending package on infrastructure that's already been agreed to by both parties. That's the bipartisan agreement. So there's already $1.2 trillion out there. They've got to take up a vote on that. They haven't voted on that yet. It's been agreed to, but they haven't voted on that. So they still have to take up a vote on the $1.2 trillion package. They've got to vote on the $3.5 trillion package, or they've got to whittle that down to some point that they can all agree to to get it voted on so they can get it into the continuing resolution before the deadline, before we default on our debt. That's the problem, right? They're simply running out of time. So this is going to become a, a bigger issue and, a, and another potential issue for the Fed. And, and as we talked about in this weekend's newsletter, the Federal Reserve is going to have to fund a big chunk of this spending. So while the Fed says they may want to taper, there is a potential risk here that they might not be able to if there's all this other conundrum that's going on. The Fed may be the last resort at this point or the only resort in terms of funding some of that debt. We'll see what happens. But as, let me just read to you from Reuters this morning. Democrats are scrambling to raise the $28 trillion federal debt ceiling, which Clyburn suggests Democrats may be forced to go it alone in order to accomplish it via reconciliation. Now, remember, difference between reconciliation and any other vote is, is that reconciliation can be done with a simple majority, 51 votes. Anything else requires a 60-vote margin, which means the Republicans, since, since the Senate only has a 51% control by Democrats, the Republicans can hold it up um, on that. Uh, GOP leader Mitch McConnell has said his party won't support the increase, even though the U.S. Treasury has warned that it will exhaust its cash and borrowing capacity in October. Here's a quote from Reuters. I'm not fine with that, but, it, but if that's what it takes, that's what it will take. Democrats aim to pass a massive spending bill without Republican support under budget reconciliation rules and cannot afford to lose any Democrats in the Senate and only three votes in the House. Moderate Senate Democrats, including Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema, uh, say the $3.5 trillion is simply too much. Manchin suggests spending less than half of that. Meanwhile, some progressive Democrats in the House say they cannot support a bill with lower spending levels aimed at bolstering the middle class. Clyburn said that it's going to take some work to bring Democrats together to support a bill, but added he thinks the party um, can do it. We'll see. The, 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 so the point here is, is that they're still trying to adhere to this $3.5 trillion, but very likely, again, with such a slim majority in both the House and the Senate, we're likely to see these bills get ratcheted down pretty quickly. Or this is going to devolve into a very large amount of infighting <laughs> that um, is going to wind up pushing off the debt ceiling debate or the House and, and Senate will have to just pass a pure reconciliation, continuing resolution, right, to fund the government and then come back to vote on these other bills. Again, that's the problem for them. If they don't do it in reconciliation, it doesn't happen at all. Reconciliation, this is what we talked about in the newsletter, is really the only path forward for them to get any type of more spending done 
uh, particularly on these more socialistic type programs that they want to do. So that's going to be the real challenge here over the course of the next, you know, two to three weeks. As, and as we start to get in towards the October deadline is where the, the pressure is really, really going to mount. And this is going to potentially take some time uh, to kind of work its way through. So this is just another pressure on the markets. It's going to be a pressure on the Fed in order to, you know, taper their balance sheet. So that, that that's that's a positive for markets, right? No, you know, Fed decides to postpone taper because of potentially this risk, the China risk, the market risk, the consumer sentiment risk. I mean, there's lots of deterioration that's going on. And the Fed has got themselves kind of trapped between this deterioration in the economy and the surging levels of inflation. In fact, uh, team trans uh, transitory on inflation is, has a has a bit bigger problem now because now used car prices are starting to soar again. So, you know, part of that inflation that was thought to be transient is turning out not to be so transient. So the Fed has really got themselves into a box between needing to taper and what happens if they do taper because, again, there's a lot of things that need that liquidity support right now, markets being one of them. And the Democrats are in a real problem. So this is going to be a very interesting couple of weeks. And this is why, again, as we kind of look at markets and what's happening with your portfolio money, time to be a little more defensive, as we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, as, uh, again, this market's going to open down pretty weak this morning. When we come back from the break, I've got just a couple of other interesting topics to kind of wrap up. The Fed, you know, we talked about the recent uh, Fed members, uh, Kaplan and others, kind of get their got their hand caught in the cookie jar, so to speak, <laughs> by trading the liquidity. And now the Fed says, oh, we're going to review our ethics rules. Well, it turns out that it's not just Kaplan Rosengren that got caught. Somebody else got caught, too. We'll talk about who that was when we come back from the break and what that might mean as well. And a couple other interesting topics just to finish out. A couple of funny ones, actually. But be right back from the break. Don't go away. You know, we recently discussed Richard Kaplan and, and Rosengren, uh, two Fed members that traded a lot of equities during the 2020 year. Richard Kaplan, the most predominant, he was the Dallas Fed head and did more than 20 trades of more than a million dollars in stocks like Apple, Microsoft, Google, et cetera. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, except for the fact that you are the one involved in supplying liquidity to markets and you are trading on that liquidity. You knew, A, when that liquidity is coming, you know when it's coming and what amounts. So you're taking advantage of information that other investors don't really have access to. So it's not really kosher. If you and I did that, we'd go to jail for insider trading, but that's a different, that's a different story. The irony of all this is, of course, is that now they've liquidated, they're going to liquidate their positions and they're going to review their ethics rules. Well, the only reason they're reviewing their ethics rules and making these changes is because they got caught. I got a text from my wife on Friday. She goes, there's an ATM laying in the parking lot of Texas Fit. Apparently, two guys in a pickup truck threw a chain around an ATM machine at the Chase Bank and tried to drive off with it. It fell out of the back of their truck into the parking lot of the ATM. So here's my point about that story, right? They stole the ATM, but it fell out of their truck in their parking lot. So they didn't get caught. 
yet, right? So they don't really need to do anything. Now, if they get caught, they say, well, you know, we did kind of return the ATM. You know, it's only a few hundred feet from the, the actual Chase Bank. So we actually returned it. We didn't actually steal it. We just moved it, <laughs> right? So because they only moved the ATM, they really didn't do anything wrong, quote unquote. Okay, you know that's not going to fly, right? They get caught, they're going to jail. And that's kind of the point here is that the only reason the Fed's making any changes whatsoever and reviewing their ethics rules is because they got caught. If they hadn't gotten caught, then they wouldn't be making any changes. They'd still be doing what they were doing. Jerome Powell has now been caught doing the same thing. He owned at least $1.5 million worth of municipal bonds like the ones the Fed's bailed out in 2020. So you're owning the bonds of the municipalities you're bailing out. See, see anything wrong with that? Again, not information you have access to, just what they have access to. So people have said, well, maybe they just need to put it all in a blind trust and have a asset manager manage it for them. Yeah, maybe. It's still gray lines because you still have access to influencing that individual and they're still buying stocks and companies that you know are in the markets. I mean, look, if you're in a position of government where you have control, and this goes to congressmen and senators as well, where you're making laws or changing rules, et cetera, that can affect or impact financial markets, you should only be able to, uh, you should only be allowed to own either indexed ETFs or mutual funds. So basically, buy an SP index fund, or you can buy treasury bonds. That's it. As long as you're in office. Now, when you get out of office, you do whatever you want to do. But while you're in office and making those decisions, and really even buying indexed ETFs, you still have influence, right? If I'm the Fed and I say, hey, we're about to put a trillion dollars a month into the markets, you know, I'm buying indexed ETFs, right? And they're still going to make money at it, but it's better than picking individual securities. At least there's some transparency to that. You know, the right way to do it would be say, look, you can't own anything but treasury bonds while you're in office. Period. And that way, you know, there's no, there's no incentive, right? You're not incentivized to do something that might benefit you personally. Is you're incentivized to do what's right for the markets and for the country and economic policy. So again, while you're in office, can't you know you, your spouse, your direct family members can't own anything other than treasury bonds. Now you do that, you you take away some of the incentive. That would seem to be the logical solution. But again, it's not the way government works. This is why Nancy Pelosi, you know, has made millions <clears throat> during the uh, pandemic shutdown, her and her husband, trading options and buying stocks and companies that were directly impacted by the decisions that Washington was making. But again, you can't prosecute congressmen. They are exempt from insider trading laws. Why? I have no idea. They should be more adhere to those laws than anyone because they're the one passing the rules. But we'll see that. Okay, a couple other stories to get into before we wind up the show. Carfax warns that 200,000 vehicles are going to be flooding the markets <clears throat> that were flooded. Get it? Flood the markets? God. 
So after uh, the Northeast was flooded, those cars that were flooded are now coming to market. So uh, again, you know, one of the big issues right now is the lack of used cars, which is why there's been a big surge in used car prices. Hurricane Ida may solve some of that demand by providing more cars onto the market supply. Just be careful, though. If you're going to go buy a used car, make sure that your car is not one of these that has been flooded because they are prone to a lot of problems down the roads um, because of the flooding, rot and electrical problems and bearing issues and all kinds of stuff. So be careful what you want. Make sure that you get a Carfax <laughs> before you go buy it. Just to go buy a used car, just to buy a used car, make sure that you get the facts uh, on that because, again, about 200,000 of those are coming to market here pretty quick. And a lot of those have been previously flooded, and you want to make sure to know what you're getting into. Um, we were talking about China early earlier. Uh, China is so <laughs> you've got to be careful with TikTok. Um, you know, if you start getting on TikTok, it's these little one-minute videos that you know you kind of watch, and you know they're funny and entertaining, and blah blah blah. And you can start watching these things, and before you know it, um, as my wife calls it, the TikTok hole. Uh, two hours will go by of your time. Uh, it'll go by quick, and you won't even realize it. TikTok is now restricting screen time to just 40 minutes per day. Now, that's interesting. TikTok is, re is restricting screen time to just 40 minutes per day. So that means if you go into TikTok, you only watch 40 minutes a day. This only applies to China. Everybody else in the U.S., you just go into TikTok hole and stay there all day long. That's completely fine. In China, Chinese youths, or as they say in My Cousin Vinny, Chinese youths, <laughs> can only watch TikTok for 40 minutes a day. Again, we go back to increasing productivity, increasing output, doing what's better for children growing up. China is making some moves that will pay off for them longer term that maybe we should start considering. There's a movie called Player One. If you ever have a chance to watch this, I was telling Brent about this the other day. It's a part animated, part real life uh, movie. And outside the movie, it has a message about the societal impact of living in a virtual world and this whole move that we're doing getting more and more ingrained into technology and you know when people are spending more and more time on social media in video games etc and not paying attention to what's happening in the real world there's a real social commentary to this and and what ultimately happens to society and the end conclusion is that they decide that, that they need to turn off the virtual world at least one day a week and have people live in the real world right and have real relationships with real people you know, China's making that decision now, something that will benefit them likely to a great degree over the next 10 and 20 years when they surpass us economically, education-wise, financially. We're going to be looking back going, where did we go wrong? And this is the moment where we went wrong by not taking control of the very things that are reducing productivity, education, intelligence, in our economy today. And again, we keep trying to have these movements against, you know, Google and Facebook and, you know, these other, um, you know, Apple, these other monopolistic companies that f continue to fail, right? We don't want them, you know, we don't 
want to impede their ability to influence our lives. So we're making that conscious choice by doing what we're doing. But again, there's consequences for those actions. And it's interesting to watch what China's doing. And it'll be interesting in 10 years from now to look back and see who made the right decision about the amount of time that we spend on social media and on, and on video games. That wraps up the show for the day. Um, we'll be back tomorrow, of course. We'll give you an update after, to, after the market, <laughs> you know, today's route. We'll see what happens tomorrow. We'll give you an update about what to do with your money, what's next. Be sure and get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Let us know what we can do to help you. We're always happy to do it. Have a great day. Uh, we'll have three minutes of markets and money. We'll kind of recap the markets and what to do, what to expect today. That'll be coming out here just shortly before the market opens as well. That's all at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, realinvestmentadvice.com. Look, if you've got questions or need help, happy to do it. Simply go by the website, click the Ask a Question button, realinvestmentadvice.com. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet. Sign up for the Real Investment Report now at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world.